<clears throat> Thank you, Neil and team. Uh, it's a joy to <clears throat> bring the word to you guys this morning. Pastor Eric sends his greetings. He is um, out of town just for the weekend, and so I get the privilege of bringing uh, the word to you all this morning. Uh, we are taking a break from our verse-by-verse teaching through the book of Romans. We took a break last week and looked at a few verses in James uh, chapter 3, talking about humility. And then today we're taking another break looking at um, just a few verses in the book of Colossians. So if you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. We'll be looking at just a few verses here this this morning, really looking at the, the topic of prayer. Paul, in many of his letters, begins with some sort of prayer. When Colby read this morning, uh, Paul mentioned in there, he mentioned some things that he is praying for, uh, for the church in Ephesus, and the same is true here in uh, the book of Colossians to the church of Colossae. And really, in fact, when you look at the early church, when you look at uh, the, the book of Acts, for example, you see there's about 30 or so prayers or examples of prayer in the book of Acts. There are just instances where the whole church is spending time getting together, praying together as a church, and many of those instances are really showing the utter dependence of that of the church and of the individuals upon God in very difficult or very impossible situations. When we are in prayer, we are before and coming before a sovereign God seeking his help, seeking his direction in life. Many circumstances can bring us to our knees. Difficult situations can bring us to our knees to plead with the Lord, to come to our aid, to intervene, or to help us to endure. Some people may ask, well, if God is sovereign, then why do we pray? Because God's going to do what he wants anyways, right? Well, there's a few answers to that. And one of them comes from uh, the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He commented by saying, Prayer is the highest activity of the human soul. And therefore, it is at the same time the ultimate test of of a man's true spiritual condition. And there's nothing else that tells the truth about us as Christian people so much as our prayer life. For everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Because the more that we grow in praying to God and seeing our dependence upon him, for really all things that we do in life, just the more that we just see that we utterly need him for all things, that we are incapable of doing anything apart from the help of Christ, which is why we go to him more in prayer, more and more. We can't really accomplish our own salvation. We can't accomplish the salvation in the lives of others. We can't accomplish our own sanctification apart from the Spirit of God working in our hearts. But yet, Pastor John MacArthur comments and says, prayer, though, is the means by which God's infinite wisdom, his infinite power, and his perfect purpose are brought together to accomplish his will. So we pray to a sovereign God, asking him to do his will through the means of prayer by which he has directed us and commanded us to do. And so again, we plead with God to change us, to save family members, to save friends, to sanctify, 
those around us because we know we cannot do these things on our own. And oftentimes, again, when we see prayer in the New Testament, it is filled with praise and thanksgiving, but also petitions. Not so much petitions for material things, but petitions, as we see in, as we read earlier in Ephesians 1, and as we see here in Colossians 1, petitions for the Lord to strengthen, to encourage, to grow the people in the church, to strengthen them and to encourage them through times of difficulty or times of joy or whatever situation Paul may be writing to them. And so really in Colossians 1, we see, I think, a model, an example for how can we as a church, how can we as believers just be in prayer for one another? How can we do that? How can we grow in our own prayer life? And how can we grow in praying for one another? So with that, follow along as I read Colossians chapter 1, just verses 9 through 11. The Word of God. For this reason also, Since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the full knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects and bearing fruit in every good work and multiplying in the full knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. Since we haven't really been in Colossians, just a brief look at uh, the book of Colossians. Uh, briefly, it was written by the Apostle Paul uh, during a time when he was imprisoned in Rome. He was in jail in Rome around 60-61 AD. Colossians is one of Paul's prison epistles, along with when, when he wrote the book of Ephesians and uh, Colossians and Philemon around the same time, and then a few years later he wrote the book of Philippians shortly before he was released. The the church in Colossae, in the town of of Colossae, was not a a church that Paul planted, um, but he knew of this church. He was familiar with it. He had most likely a a relationship with uh, the pastor Epaphras. You see that in verse 7 of chapter 1. Either he was in jail with them, or somehow um, he knew of uh, of that pastor of Epaphras. And so he was familiar with his church in Colossae. He was familiar with what their struggles were. He was familiar with maybe what some of their needs were. Now, the town of Colossae wasn't a very, very well-known town. It wasn't a very big town. It wasn't, just, it wasn't really a big, significant area in the Roman Empire, but yet it was filled with a lot of Greek uh, philosophy, a lot of really in, heavily influenced by Greek philosophy. And so you see, really starting in chapter 1, starting in verse 15, Paul refuting a lot of false claims that come from some of these false beliefs about Christ, from these ancient philosophies coming in. Paul is seeking to refute them. Among other things, Paul is also seeking to refute sort of an early form of Gnosticism, this sort of higher esoteric spiritual knowledge that really had no claim on anything, and really the idea that my knowledge is my knowledge and yours is yours and we don't really share that and my knowledge because it's for me is higher than anything else that we could attain to. Which makes sense then why Paul prays in verse 9 and in verse 10 that they would grow in true knowledge. The knowledge of the word of God and the will of God and the true knowledge of God himself. Paul opens up this letter here and 
chapter 1, verse 9 through 14. And he really does two things here. You notice I stopped at verse 11. Maybe you're wondering, why didn't you keep going on through verse 14? Because there's two sections there in, uh, in that section on prayer. Verse 9 through 11 is Paul's petition of, to the Lord on behalf of the people. And verse 12 through 14 is Paul's praise to the Lord for what he has done for us. And so for our purposes, we're just focusing on verses 9, 10, and 11. And so we're going to see just two characteristics, two characteristics of prayer, for really two characteristics for how and for what we should be praying for one another. The first, as we see in verse 9, the first characteristic is that we are to be praying for the will of God to be done in our life and in the lives of others. We're to be praying for the will of God. This isn't some secret wills or look at, but that we can see what the will of God is. You notice there, Paul starts out, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul and his companions in jail are praying for this church. He heard of a good report. He heard about their love for Christ. Uh, from Epaphras, verse 7, he heard of, uh, of their love for one another, their love in the Spirit, verse 8. And so because of that, he prays for them. And he praises the Lord for them, and he brings to the Lord some requests and some petitions on their behalf. And so he's praying for God to grow them and to mature them. You notice that Paul says also, we've not ceased to pray for you. Not that Paul has done nothing other than pray for this one church. Because he said the same thing in Ephesians. So isn't that contradictory? He, see, the Bible contradicts itself. That's not, not what he's saying, right? He, what he's saying is, look, whenever I'm in prayer, which was for Paul often and a lot, he prayed for this church by name. Maybe he prayed for those individually he knew in this church by name. But he prayed for this church specifically by name, unceasingly when he was in prayer to the Lord, this church was brought before the throne. And these petitions were asked of the Lord to grow this church in these ways. And just really as a side note or by implication, if you are not in a regular habit of praying for your church, whether it's a cornerstone or wherever you are, wherever you're a member, wherever you regularly attend, this, this verse, I think, would by implication urge you to do so. That whenever you are in prayer, which should be daily as believers, we should be praying for the church. You don't have to spend an hour in praying for the church. If you, if you can, great, praise the Lord. But just a few minutes praying for these things, praying for the Lord to be honored in this church or whatever church you are a member of. That the Lord would be glorified. That the Lord, let, let God would be exalted. That Christ would be exalted through the lives of the people and through just the church as a whole. Right? Then what, what does Paul pray? He prays again for... A few things here, but he says, praying for the will of God, he says that we, I pray for you unceasingly, asking that you may be filled with a full knowledge of his will. The full knowledge of his will, then he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The idea there, Paul says, to be filled, it means to be completely filled. To be totally controlled is the idea. It's the same word that was used in Acts chapter 4, verse 31, to speak of the believers being filled with the Holy Spirit when it came upon them, when they were converted. And so really the idea of to be filled is to be totally controlled by something. The, verses, or the word also is, to, is used um, 
I can remember where in Luke, but when the Pharisees were filled with anger over Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath, they were filled and controlled with anger because Jesus did something they didn't like. This idea of being filled is to be controlled. But to be controlled in this sense, to be controlled by the Spirit of God, to be controlled by the Word of God, so that we may do the will of God, is what he's saying. To be filled with the full knowledge of his will. To, be com- to really to be completely controlled by the word of God as we are working or doing his will through us. Because we often ask, what's the will for my life? What does God want me to do? And often we're asking, what kind of job should I take? Who should I marry? What should I do in this certain situation? And, and while we might look through certain verses on, you know, the Proverbs 31 woman or other things, uh, uh, which is great to do for figure out who you should marry if, if you're a guy. Um, the, the, the Bible is not going to tell us exactly who and what we should do or, or those sort of things, right? But again, the, the will of God is not some sort of secret will. We have to do some sort of inner soul searching and digging to come up with something sort of creative. Because God clearly often outlines us for us in his word, this is my will for you that you do this. Some examples of that we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It says, for this is the will of God for you. When I hear that, I should think, this is great. I, what's God's will for me? This, he says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. God's will for us is our sanctification. Whatever our situation of life may be, God's will for us is to grow into Christ-likeness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. It says that God's will... It's for people to be saved, people to be converted. And in First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul says that it's the Lord's will that we give thanks to him for all things. It's the Lord, he calls us, what's, our, what's God's will for us? To be saved, to be sanctified, and to give thanks to him for all things. No matter what situation we are in. Again, there's many more verses like that, but those are just a few verses talking about what the Lord's will might be for my life. We also will see as in the rest of this verse, the Lord's will for us is to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding. The Lord's will for us is to be mature, to be made more mature in Christ, to be, have more spiritual strength, but we'll see that here in just a few minutes. When Paul says that you would grow in the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, really, he's using two words to make a, a very clear point. And he's using two words that are very similar as well. The word wisdom really speaks, to, speaks of the ability to collect and to understand um, biblical principles. Like, what does God's word say? What are the principles that God has outlined in his word for me? That's spiritual wisdom. And then understanding has the idea of applying those principles to everyday life. How do we know what God's will is for us? We look at the principles in the word of God. What are those principles? And how can we apply that with wisdom, with skill, with understanding from the rest of Scripture? Right? Again, the Bible is full of wisdom that we're to be applying just in everyday situations, in everyday life. No matter if we're at home with the kids, we're working, we're hiking, we're, doing some, we're recreating, whatever we are doing, the Scriptures give us guidelines and principles for how we are to be living. 
But then in order to gain wisdom, in order to gain a, a clear understanding of God's will, we must be prioritizing time in the Word of God then. We have to prioritize reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, meditating or chewing upon the Word of God, hearing the Word of God preached to us, memorizing the Word of God. Psalm 119, verse 11. We should all, if you guys weren't a wanna as a kid, uh, like I was, uh, you, rem- you remember this verse. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We memorize God's word so we can grow in wisdom and, and not sin as much against the Lord. Also, that implies then we have to desire God's word, to love his word. The prophet Hosea says in chapter 6, verse 11, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord, he says. And that idea just to press on, to desire to know his word, to know him through his word. But even more fundamentally, if we're to understand the will of God for our life, we first have to be saved. I can't understand the word of God at all unless the spirit of God first indwells me and illumines my mind to understand what is being said. I can't understand again what the will of God is without having first the Spirit of God indwelling me, saving me, converting me, calling me from death to life, and transforming me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, giving us a new heart and a renewed mind to understand what the Word of God says. Really just how might you need to grow in understanding the will of God? For your own life. How about you need to grow in understanding just how you need to grow in understanding the Word of God so that you may do the will of God? The Spirit of God who wrote His Word indwells us. He lives within us as believers. He has spoken clearly to us through His Word on how we are to live, how we are to respond, how we are to obey the Lord. And that's God's will. We're praying that for ourselves and for one another. And speaking of God's will, again, we often hear the idea, listen for a still, small voice. Don't do that. Because if you hear something, call me. We'll, we'll set up an appointment. We'll talk. Um, but don't be waiting for some still, small voice to tell you something, what to do. Search the Word of God. Search the Scriptures. What should I do in the situation? What does God's Word say? What are some principles I can glean from the, the Word of God to know how should I live in this situation? How should I respond in this situation? How should I obey the Lord in this particular instance? Okay. How might you just need to be spending more time in the Word of God? How might you need to prioritize time in the Word more so you can be able to make sure that you're being more faithful and obedient to Him more? Well, the second characteristic then, and we're going to spend most of our time here. The second characteristic of, of what and how we are to be praying for one another is found in verse 10 and 11. And it's a characteristic of that we're to pray for spiritual growth. We're to pray for the will of God to be done in our life and the life of others, which is found in his word. And we're to pray for spiritual growth. And Paul starts out verse 10. He says this, So that... Well, so that what? Or what's the so that? 
What does he mean? Because the will of God is found in the word of God, Paul is praying that they would be full of the knowledge of his will so that they can walk in this way, so they can grow in spiritual strength. Really, the so that there is so that as we grow in our knowledge of the word of God, our spiritual life increases. Our maturity in Christ increases. And we cannot think that we can grow in Christ, we can be mature in Christ without the word of God. We can't do that. There's no such thing as a mature Christian who never reads the Bible or who rarely reads the Bible. We have to daily be in the word of God. Often be in the word of God. When we don't know what to do, we pray, we read, we meditate upon his word. We sit under expository preaching to hear what the word of God means and how it is to be applied in our lives. And Paul lists here, well, the idea of spiritual growth, Paul, Paul lists four manifestations of that spiritual growth. He, he, Paul lists really four results or four manifestations then of what does it mean to grow in the knowledge of his word. If part of God's will for me, like what is that? And so really these four manifestations are really part of God's will for you. It's an aspect that these are the, the applications of God's will. As I'm growing and understanding an application of God's word. The, the first, Paul says in verse 10, is that we would walk in a manner worthy, or we would walk in, in a way that is pleasing to him. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing in him in all respects. That we would live a life pleasing to Christ. We, we should know the word of God so we can live in such a way that pleases Christ. The word walk there, it means the, the, the daily pattern of your life. How are you just living? The daily pattern of one's life is what is being used here. And Paul uses this phrase other, in other places to speak of the goal and the motivation of the Christian. But the Christian walk is really the, 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 talking about the goal and the motivation to become more like Christ. You know, to live in a way that is honoring to him. Paul says also in Ephesians chapter 4 that we would walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. It's the same idea, the same word there is being used. Really walk in a way that is honoring and pleasing to Christ. And so Paul is saying that in light of the gospel, in light of what Christ has done for you, in light of just him saving you from your sin, again, calling you from the domain of darkness, being blinded by our sin, hating Christ and running away from him, but Christ dying on the cross for our sins and taking our punishment, the wrath that we deserve upon himself, in light of all that, live in a way that shows thankfulness to the cross. Live in a way that is worthy of that. Christ has redeemed you, so live this way, he's saying. Walk in this way, in a way that is pleasing, that is worthy of that great salvation. And he says, walk in, a, walk in a manner worthy, pleasing him in some respects, all respects. 
In every area of our life is what Paul is saying. We are to be pleasing to the Lord in every situation, every area of life. Really the idea of there's no, there's no closed doors in our life. Of the, these, are, these are sins you don't touch, Jesus. These are things I like. These are things I'm holding on to. These are things I'm clinging on to. There's no secret sins that we should be indulging in that no one really knows about because the Lord does. He knows. He's sovereign. He knows. Other people might not know, but the Lord knows. But the idea of every area of our life should be lived in a way that is pleasing to him. Not seeking to please man, not seeking to fear man, but seeking to please and fear the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 says something very similar, that whether we are at home in the body, or we are absent from the body and present with the Lord, Paul says we make it our aim to be pleasing to him. We make it our goal in life to please Christ, no matter what we are doing. Again, if there's something in your life that is not pleasing to Christ, it's not part of that worthy walk, we can repent. We can ask the Lord for forgiveness and turn from that and follow the Lord. We all have areas like that. I have areas like that where I'm maybe not quite sure of something. I I see there's a sin in my life that, that is being revealed to me, and I need to repent of that and not just say, well, no big deal. When when those sins come to our mind and we realize this is not pleasing to the Lord, this is not part of the worthy walk, we need to turn from that. You can pray for the Lord to do this to one another. Even things that maybe aren't sin but are hindering our walk with the Lord, as as the author of Hebrews chapter 12 says, that things that are hindering our race, things that are hindering our walk with Christ, but aren't necessarily sin, but are kind of holding us back. We can let go of those things and live in a way that is more pleasing to the Lord. Maybe you're thinking, well, this is impossible to please Christ. He's perfect and I'm not. You're right. By your own effort, it is totally impossible to please God. It's totally impossible to please Christ, which is why Christ had to come for us so that we can live this way. Because once Christ saves somebody, the Spirit indwells that person, he gives them a new heart, and he sets them on that path of sanctification. God has not left us to our own devices. He has given us his Spirit, he's given us his Word to help us then walk in greater obedience to him, to repent of certain sins, or to to repent of sins, sorry, not just some sins, to repent of our sin, and to grow more and more into Christ-likeness, which is a way that is pleasing to him which is more honoring to him. And for you, what, that, what, what, what might that be? What's something in your life or maybe you're clinging on to that's sort of secret that no one really knows about? Things that are hindering your walk. Like, you know, man, this isn't really worthy of the gospel. Christ died for that. What might that be? Are you praying for your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ that they would walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling? Are you praying that God would help them to be pleasing to him in all respects? The second manifestation then, as you see here in verse 10, not only are we living a life that is pleasing to Christ, we're also to be bearing much fruit. Bearing a lot of fruit. We're going to say obedience. We're to be obedient to the Lord. He says, bearing fruit in every good 
work. This, this idea of fruit-bearing is, is all throughout the New Testament, and it's really referring to just the believer's growth in Christ, the, the Christian growing into greater, greater Christ-likeness. <clears throat> and this, I, this phrase here in chapter 1, verse 10, is written in the original language in such a way that it means that it's to continually be happening, that the believer is continually growing and bearing fruit in all that he does. We're never to stop bearing fruit. We can never say, I've arrived and I'm okay and I don't don't need to grow anymore. Or I've I've achieved perfection here. Like a fruit tree, you want to constantly be producing fruit. So the believer needs to constantly be growing into greater and greater Christ-likeness. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And in verse 8, Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this. So again, we hear that phrase, How is God glorified? We should pay attention to that. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Implication then, if we're not bearing fruit, if we're not growing in Christ-likeness, if we're not maturing in the Lord, Jesus is saying, You're probably not my disciple. You, you probably are not a believer if there's no evidence, there's no growth. And you plant like a fruit tree. And the thing, you know, starts to kind of grow up and there's, <clears throat> uh, you know, maybe there's little leaves here and there, but it never produces fruit. There's nothing ever growing from it. We wouldn't just think, hey, look at my fruit tree. We'd think, look at this, this, this thing is kind of worthless and pointless. Let me get this thing out of the ground and plant something that's going to produce fruit, that's going to bear fruit here. Something that's going to be useful. But often in, in some Christian circles, we, we, we talk about the idea of bearing fruit as it's optional, it's not a big deal, don't worry about it. Um, you know, bearing fruit is really for the elite Christians, like the really good ones. Uh, you're not there yet. That's, no, Scripture doesn't say that at all. It says every believer is to be bearing fruit to be producing more and more Christ-likeness throughout their life. If you turn back a few books to the book of uh, Galatians, the book of Galatians, Paul talks about this idea of fruit, of what does it mean to bear fruit? What, are some, what, what, what does this really kind of look like? In chapter 5, We'll start at verse 19. He says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, just in case he forgot something, things like these, which I forewarned you, just as I forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the deeds of the flesh. These are the, you could say bad fruit. These are the deeds of the flesh, but, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law, verse 24. Now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We are to live by 
the Spirit, verse 25, let us also walk in step by the Spirit. That is fruit-bearing. That the believer is not to, we're not going to be perfect in all those things, but those things ought to be manifest in our life and growing. Those things should be evident in our life and growing as believers more and more. Some other ways we can really grow and look at the idea of bearing more fruit is this growing in a love and an obedience for the Word of God. Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Psalm 119, verse 97 says, oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation day and night. We can also grow by bearing fruit, by having a greater love for Christ. By loving him more. By just seeing what he's done for us. By meditating upon his, his love for us, his sacrifice for us. That his sinless life was crucified on our behalf so that we may have a new life in him so that we may receive his righteousness. I mean, that is incredible. If we meditate on that daily, we would love him more. We ought to love him more. Even if you're married, your spouse does something really, really nice for you. They cook dinner for you. They clean up after you because you're a slob like I am or whatever, whatever it is. You love them because of, because of the, you know, their, their acts of love for you. Your, your love for them increases. It should increase. But how much more so our love for Christ increased as the more we meditate upon what he's done for us and how he has loved us and how he has sacrificed himself on our behalf. We should love him and increase in loving him and not wanting to displease him, but wanting to honor him and walk worthy of him. And we'd also bear fruit and just begin repenting of known sins in our life. Romans 6.6 6 says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him or with Christ in order that our, the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. And the more that we learn Scripture, the more that we study the Bible, the more that we love Christ, the more that we are bearing fruit in righteousness, the more that we are walking in step with the Spirit, Galatians 5, the more that we hate our sin, the more that we are mortifying our sin or crucifying our sin because no, we are no longer in bondage to sin is the idea. The more that we grow in love for the Lord, a love for his word, our, our, our sinful heart is being mortified by that. The flesh is being mortified or put to death so that we can have a greater love for Christ. Again, what areas might you need to grow in? What character qualities of Christ in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, if you look at those, I mean, those Christ exemplified those. Those are just character qualities of Jesus that we are to be living and producing more and more obedience in. Which one of those might you need to grow in more? How might you need to be bearing more fruit in your own Christian life? How might you need to be praying for other people in the church to be bearing fruit in everything that they're doing? in their home, their workplaces, just their daily walk with the Lord that they need to be producing more and more fruit and how might you need to be in prayer for them for those things? Well, the third really result of growing in understanding of the will of God through his word is a continual increase in knowing God. We could spend the entire sermon on these few words. 
We could spend the entire year on the implications of this. That we are to have a continual increase or a multiplication of the full knowledge of God. Again, just as bearing fruit in every good work is continual, multiplying in the full knowledge of God is a continual thing, a constant work that takes effort and we're never going to achieve in this life or the next in heaven. But we are to be constantly seeking to know more of who this God is. We're to be constantly trying to read the scriptures to understand who God is, but also understanding that it is the Spirit of God who helps us to grow in this knowledge in the first place. How does that work out where we have to put forth effort and then God's the one who does the work in us? I don't know. Scripture doesn't say, but it says both are true. It's very similar to what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, excuse me, verse 2, uh, sorry, verse 12, and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, not work for, but work it out. Just being obedient. He's saying, for it is God who has a work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Both are true. We strive towards godliness. We make efforts to, to, to deny ourselves and to, to put on Christ-likeness. But yet, it is the Lord who's doing the work in us. We have some goofy cows. I like them because that means meat. Um, I can't make those cows get big and nice and juicy. I can't do that. I, but I have to provide food for them and water for them to grow. And trust that the Lord will do the work to allow me to have that animal on my plate one day. Right? In a much more real and serious way, we put an effort in, Christian, in the Christian life by reading the Word of God, meditating upon the truth, by seeing a glimpse and a glimmer of who the Lord is, but the Spirit of God is the one who is indwelling us. He is the one who is helping us to understand the reality of God and who he is and his character and his attributes. A couple of things regarding the knowledge of God. Again, when we see this, we also have to understand it's not, he's not just telling us to know more about him in some weird way. He's saying, you know me. Be intimately acquainted with me. And we should be thinking, we're not worthy of that. Psalm 8 verse 4, what is man that you're mindful of him? Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he says, know me. Come to understand me. Come before my throne. Romans 11, verse 33, helps us to understand also that the more and more that we gain in our knowledge of God, the more we realize we don't really know him that well. His knowledge or his ways are unsearchable. We, don't, we can't fully grasp everything about the Lord. A greater understanding of the Lord also helps us to become more sanctified. Puritan George Swinnick, I think that's how you say it, says this, that we often change our opinion, attitudes, fashion, dispositions, because of those whom we associate with. Surely then, our acquaintance with the Holy God will make us in some measure resemble Him. Again, just some, just some attributes of God we can just dwell on and meditate on for a little bit. That God is absolutely majestic and perfect. Psalm 86, 8, Jeremiah 10, verse 6, they both declare that there is no one like God. 
There is no one like him. He is boundless in his attributes. There's no limit to who he is. God is triune, yet one. The Father, the Son, the Spirit are one, yet distinct persons. You can read more about that in 1 Peter chapter 1 as well. They're equal in Godhead, but they have same attributes, distinct roles. Right? The Father, the Father has chosen whom he would save before eternity passed. Before anything was created, God knew whom he would save and call to salvation. The Son accomplishes that redemption, that salvation, by sacrificing his life, his death for us. The Spirit, then, he's the one who regenerates and indwells the believer. God, he's the creator of all that we see in the heavens and the earth. Just marveling at the fact that when Genesis says that God created the stars, it just says stars also. I mean, how many stars are there? A lot. God created them by saying stars, and they showed up. That's incredible power. That God created everything out of nothing. He created everything in existence by speaking. Not only that, Colossians 1 says that Christ is the one who created, and he is the one who maintains and sustains everything. Every molecule in the universe is known by God. And he sustains it from exploding and just going crazy. God is a God of power and authority. Since he made all things, he controls all things. He is sovereign over all things. Isaiah 40, verse 10, Romans 8, 28 through 30, and many other places declare he's sovereign over everything. He's in charge of everything. He has total control over all things. There's nothing beyond his grasp, even in your life. There's nothing beyond the grasp of God <clears throat> to help you and to come to your aid, or nothing he is not authoritative over which is why we go to him in prayer. When something, is, uh, when something is difficult in our life, we go to him in prayer for help to either remove the situation, which he could do, or to help us to endure the situation, which we'll look at here in just a few minutes. God is unsearchable again in his knowledge, Romans 11, verse 33, meaning that we will spend eternity growing in our knowledge of God, in our understanding of him. We will never fully know him for who he is. We will always be increasing in, his under, in our understanding of him. And God's knowledge, again, is infinite. God's fully aware of every single bird in the sky right now. My daughter the other day was trying to do homeschool, and part of, it, part of her homeschool is to like, um, do a nature study, so she was supposed to look at birds. Well, there was no birds anywhere. Well, God knew where they were. They were hiding. We couldn't see them, but God knew. How many, I, mean, there's, I, don't, I don't know how many varieties of birds there are. I, 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 I knew once and I forgot. God never does. But I mean, there's so many birds. In Matthew 6, is it like God, Jesus knows every sparrow that falls to the earth. Every single one he knows. God knows all the grains of sand on all the beaches of the world. He knows all the numbers uh, and the names of the stars in the sky. He's named them all. Sometimes I have a time remembering my own kids' names. God, I have four. God knows and Jesus knows every star. He knows the number of hairs on your head. Again, this knowledge of God isn't just for our head knowledge. It is for that, but it's also for us to trust in him. Because if God is aware of those things, if God is infinite, if God is unsearchable in all of his knowledge and he knows all these things and he is acquainted with me in this way, I can trust him. 
I can love him. I don't have to be anxious about things. Because God's in control. He knows this. I can trust him. And God is holy, Isaiah 6. The angels in heaven are around the throne right now and will be for all of eternity, declaring, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full of his glory. No sin can enter into his presence. So it's incredible that we are allowed to go there. Not because of our righteousness, but because of Christ. God is a God of redemption, of salvation. He ordained and he planned out how Christ would come to earth to redeem us from our sin. Before eternity passed, he planned what he would do because salvation is not up to human effort. It's up to the sovereignty of God. And God is in all places, at all times, throughout the universe. God's not bound by time or space as we are. There's nowhere we can go to flee from the Lord. God sees all things. God is acquainted with all things. God is near us. Psalm 46.1 God is with us. And yet he is with everyone else who calls upon his name. God's a God of great patience. He doesn't just destroy us when we sin against him. <laughs> the wages of sin is what? Death. I, have to, I deserve to die because I've sinned. God is patient with us. God's patient with us. He's a God of great love and patience. God is boundless in his grace, seen primarily in his saving grace towards us. Again, not only, as Neil mentioned, not only saving us from eternity in hell, which is great, which is a good thing, but even look in Colossians chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, when Paul gives praise to the Lord for what? Who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints and light. He's rescued us from the authority of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We have redemption and forgiveness of sins. That, that grace is not just getting out of hell, it is, it is a transference of Christ's righteousness to us, the forgiveness of our sins, so we can have a relationship with him. We have an inheritance. We've been given grace by Christ. When we get to heaven, he will give us rewards. Not because of anything we've done. Why? Because he is gracious. That's who this God is. God has no equal. He's immeasurably immense and glorious. Again, we can continue on and on and on and on and on and on. Declaring just the goodness of the Lord, the mighty deeds of the Lord, the attributes of God. But I have a plan to catch. We will never arrive at our knowledge of God. But the more we learn about him, the more holy we ought to become. The greater understanding of God that we have, we must, that must really bring us closer to the conformity of Christ. And how well are you? How well are you doing in knowing God more? In increasing your knowledge of God? Maybe you just need to study the Bible more. Where do I go to study the Bible on, on having a greater understanding of God? I could just say everywhere, but a few places, maybe more specifically. Isaiah chapter 40 through 48, you see the sovereignty of God, the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the power of God on display in Isaiah 40 through 48. 
If you're anxious, read Isaiah 40-48 every day to help you gain a trust in him. Again, pray for yourself. Pray for others to grow in the knowledge of God. So a, few, a few good books on just the, uh, really systematize the sovereignty or just the, the, the attributes of God. Stephen Charnock's book, The Existence and Attributes of God, if you really want a, a thick book to read, it's like this thick. That's like uh, a thousand pages. It's a lot. And that, that doesn't even scratch the surface of really who God is. Well, as we're wrapping up time, your fourth. The fourth really characteristic or fourth or manifestation, rather, of what our life should be like and growing in spiritual strength and growing in really spiritual uh, growth here is joyfully enduring trials, verse 11. Joyfully enduring trials. Being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience joyously. Really, another way to grow in knowing God more is through the endurance of trials. As trials come upon us, we see the grace of God on display, we see the mercy of God on display, we see the kindness of God on display in the midst of those trials, oftentimes. When Paul says, strengthened with all, spirit, with all power, <clears throat> excuse me, according to his glorious might, really what he's saying there is to be strengthened with power, meaning to be continually enabled to do something. Again, the believer is not able to do anything on his own. We're continually enabled by God with his power, according to his glorious might, to continue on in our life. When he says the might of God, his glorious might, it's the idea of, Paul, uh, of Paul's using really the idea of God's strength in action. God coming to our aid, God strengthening us, helping us, in our everyday life. That's the idea. And really, when you're talking about steadfastness and patience then, <coughs> excuse me, um, he's talking about the idea of endurance. Enduring certain trials. Or just life, sometimes the, all of life is a trial. Just enduring life until the Lord brings us home. If you're like me, you get tired often and easy. You get exhausted you get weak. Your body gives out. God's power, God's might, God's strength never runs dry. And God gives that to you as the believer. He gives you his strength, his power to endure, to press on, to not give up. And so as we grow in the knowledge of God and through his word, we're reminded of the character of God, how he doesn't change, how he doesn't grow weak, how he doesn't grow weary. He doesn't need sleep. He doesn't need rest. He's never drained of energy. He gives us his power and his strength to endure. The word there for steadfastness has more to do with with enduring Hard, difficult circumstances. Patience has more to deal with patiently enduring people. Paul knew a little bit about that. I think we all do as well. 
Sometimes people can be a hardship and trial in our, in our life, if we're honest. But also, if we're honest, I can be hard for somebody, and people have to be patient with me often. I know my, my own family does. Right? And he uses the word joyous there, joyously. Some commentators might link that to verse um, 12, joyously giving thanks. But most, in the Greek, it it makes more sense to be tied to the idea of joyfully um, being steadfast and patient. Joyfully enduring trials is the idea. James 1, verse 2 and 3 says again, Consider all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various kinds of trials. Consider it joy. That's a command. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. That's what Paul is saying here. We can't, cons- we can't really consider a, a trial joyful without the strength of the Lord, without his work in our life, without him strengthening us and sanctifying us through that trial. One way, how can, we endure, how can we endure a trial with joy? Seeing that God is using that trial to sanctify us. That's part of his will, is to put us in situations to sanctify us. Oftentimes through trial. What is God's will for my life? We see also in, in 2 Timothy, God's will for your life is that you suffer hardship. That's part of God's will. That you suffer hardship. Why? So that we can mature in Christ-likeness is the idea. How might you need to be thinking through trials in your own life, different hardships, different people? How is the Lord growing you in the situations, in those circumstances, to mature you, to root out sin, to draw you to Christ, to make you more and more like him in thought, word and deed? How might you need to be relying more upon the Lord's strength rather than on your own in these difficult trials? Again, it's, it's Paul's constant prayer for these believers that, and it should be ours as well, that we would increase in knowing the will of the Lord for our lives through a greater knowledge of his word, which leads us to a life that is pleasing to him, bearing fruit, growing in our understanding about him, and enduring the difficult trials of life. And this is the will of God for our lives, brothers, sisters, is it not? This is the will of God for us. This is what he has called us for. And this is what God has called you to be in prayer for. For yourselves, for one another, in this church.